Welcome to the Highly Spirited Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie McNew. I love cocktails and I love the macabre. So every week I'm bringing you a cocktail recipe in history and some ghost stories. So let's get ready to get lit and get scared. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Highly Spirited Podcast. It is officially season three and I have kind of the whole year, whole season planned out already. So I'm very excited about that. We have some fun things coming and some new things. It is the first episode of 2024 and I meant to have one out last week, but it was New Year's week. I was kind of just exhausted after all the holiday stuff. So I just gave myself a much needed break. And you know what? I wasn't totally on a break, though. I was still working on stuff in the background and got a lot of, like, background boring work done for this podcast. Just kind of skipped an episode. It probably wasn't going to be that great anyways because I would have rushed through it. So I'd rather bring you good episodes later in the month and today. So we have a good one today. With it being 2024 in the first episode of the year, did you know that 2024 is an eight in numerology? I don't know if any of you guys are into numerology. I kind of am, not as much as I am into astrology, but I think it can be a useful tool. So it is an eight year. Eight years are full of luck, abundance, and things coming full circle. Like eight is literally an infinity symbol. So all the good things should be coming this year. My life path number is also an eight. So I do think this year is going to be like extra auspicious for me and I have a lot of good things lined up. If you want to find though your own life path number, it's really simple. Just the, just take the numbers of your birth date, the day, month, year, add them all together until you reach a single digit between one and nine. For example, mine is six for June and I was born on the 30th day in the year 1988. So I would have 36 with just the month and the day. I would add those together, it would be a nine. And then I would add all my year numbers together. So one plus nine plus eight plus eight. I would have 26, which is eight. So I would add that to that original nine I had. It's 17, which breaks down to an eight. So I have an eight for my life path number. And there are all kinds of resources online to tell you what to do with that number once you get it. If you just Google life path numbers, all kinds of things are going to pop up for you. I really like Astro Cafe. That's a pretty legit site. Um, If anybody's charging you money to read your life path, skip those. They're probably a scam. There's all kinds of good free information out there. Don't pay people for that. I mean, if you want to, you should find somebody legit. But online, if it's coming up in a Google search, I'd probably just skip that. And don't let anybody like don't find, you know, an astro reader on Instagram. It's probably not going to be the vibe. Yeah, so it's an eight year. I'm an eight. Really, really excited about maybe what I can create in this year. So yeah, find out yours. Let me know. I would love to talk numerology with anybody. Um, It just fascinates me a little bit, but that is not what today's show is about. My mom got me a book on Indianapolis crimes of the past, like historical happenings and like interesting people who had came and gone from Indianapolis. And as we all know, crimes and disasters can absolutely add to hauntings. And we'll get into those. But first, we absolutely need a cocktail. And what better cocktail to pair with an Indianapolis episode than a St. Elmo cocktail? And it's really the St. Elmo Cola. And I don't mean they're ready to drink bottled cocktails. Those are actually delicious, but that's not what we're talking about today. Today's episode is on their original menu, the St. Elmo Steakhouse, located in downtown Indy since 1933. The restaurant St. Elmo's is really known for their world-famous shrimp cocktail sauce. It's super hot. It's spicy. It kind of throws people off if they've never had it before, but it is good. But they're also known for their take on 
an old fashioned. I don't even know if you would call this an old fashioned. It kind of is. It's kind of not. Purists are going to hate it, but it is an Indianapolis staple. This is a mix of their very own cherry vanilla whiskey, and it's garnished with a drunken Luxardo cherry. And then you're given a glass bottled Coca-Cola to pour over it. And it's really quite yummy. It's really sweet. I think it's delicious. If I'm going to order an old fashioned, this isn't really what comes to mind. But if you're there or in their 1933 lounge, like, yeah, you got to get one just because you're there. It's just like, you just have to. It's part of the experience. <laughs> so that is the St. Elmo's Cola. It's just their whiskey, cherry vanilla whiskey bottled coke it has to be a bottle they said you could use diet if you want to but it does need to come in the glass bottle and i love those glass bottles it just adds it's again just part of the experience okay and a luxardo cherry use a good cherry if you're making it at home i'm going to go on a quick break and then i will be right back with some haunted indianapolis tales guys, are you looking for a fun winter read? If you're a book person, I have two right up your alley. They're not really long reads. They're actually cocktail books. So I wrote two last year. One is called Drinking with the Stars, Cocktails for the Zodiac, where I pair a cocktail with your Zodiac sign. This one is a lot of fun at parties because you can make specific cocktails for your friends too while talking about their sign and like finding a little bit more about their personality. A lot of it'll start making sense. And my second one is called Monster Mixology, where I pair folklore with cocktails. There is everything from vampires, witches, werewolves to cryptids. That one was my favorite, actually. It came out around Halloween last year, but it's for all seasons. There's summer cocktails, there's spring cocktails, there's some winter ones, and who doesn't love folklore all year round? So check those out. They are on Amazon. If you search them by name or if you search as McNew, they should pop up. And I'm back. And as I've always said, tragedy breeds ghosts. And Indianapolis has no shortage of tragedy and no shortage of ghosts. I have done a couple other Indiana episodes in the past in previous seasons. I have previously talked about the Hannah, the Hannah House, the Allison Mansion, the Slippery Noodle Inn, and the Indiana Repertory Theater. So those places are not going to be mentioned here today. I have some new locations to cover. So if you're looking for those, they're definitely in past episodes. If you message me, I can look up which episodes they were. I forget. Or just scroll and search. It'll either say Indianapolis or Indiana. Most likely it'll say Indiana. But I have covered those places before and they're just as interesting. But I have found some new Indiana haunts. And we are going to start with Indianapolis' very own Crown Jewel, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. IMS, and this place has no shortage of tragedy. And it honestly shocked me how many deaths have occurred here. I mean, I don't know why it's a racetrack. It's just not highly publicized. I think they just kind of sweep those things under the rug. We're going to show up on carb day. We're going to party. We're going to party all weekend and have the 500. It's just supposed to be a good time, okay? Really, the whole month of May in Indianapolis is alive in Speedway, and we're just having a good time. But some not-so-great things have happened here. The track was constructed in 1909, and in a century plus of races, it's seen 73 deaths, 41 of which were drivers. One that may stand out to race fans is the death of IndyCar driver Gordon Smiley in 1982 during that year's Indy 500. Apparently, before the race, he lightheartedly told car owner Bob Fletcher that he was going to hit 200 miles or die trying. Honestly, that's just tempting fate in the universe. Don't say shit like that. He probably didn't know better. 
Fletcher and other drivers tried to warn Smiley not to overcorrect on this track. Apparently he was, from what I read, he was really used to like dirt tracks and road tracks and the speedway is just not the same texture, a different vibe. If you overcorrect, you're going to fling yourself instead of making the correction. So they tried to warn him. He really didn't heed this advice. He kind of was just overly cocky. He was just set on hitting that 200 miles an hour that day. So this wasn't quite the 500 yet. These were qualifying rounds. He was on his qualifying lap four. The car broke right and then slammed into a wall, bursting into flames and pieces. And they do believe that Smiley died instantly. He hit the wall at approximately 185 miles an hour. I did myself the great disservice of watching this wreck on YouTube, and it was incredibly graphic and devastating to watch. I don't recommend watching it, but it's out there if you do want to see it. Um, just search Gordon Smiley 1982 ND500. It's going to just front page right there. And oh my God, this car, it just literally broke in half. And then you see other pieces and a fireball. It was insanity. So he kind of tempted fate saying, I'm going to do it or I'm going to die trying. He definitely died trying. And he was warned by so many drivers, you can't drive the way you do on this track. And he didn't just, he just didn't heed the warnings, which is very unfortunate for him and the people who had to witness that and his family. This track has also seen its share of um, cold-blooded murders, and they weren't perhaps at the track, but the people I'm naming next are very track-related or adjacent, and I don't usually do true crimes on this show, but these are old enough, I think, that they're going to be okay to mention, and they they were all over the newspapers anyway, so I'm just going to kind of uh, go off those facts. And so it is called IMS, Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I found an article calling it Indianapolis. Indianapolis Murder Speedway, which kind of made me giggle. I mean, murder is not funny, but it was just a fun play on words, honestly. One of the first murders that was Speedway adjacent is Elmer George. Elmer was a race car driver, but he didn't really have a lot of success. He was trying to race in the 1950s. It was very, very competitive. He wasn't doing great out there as a driver, but his luck did change. He met the owner of the Speedway's daughter, Um, Her name was Marie Holman, daughter of Anton and Mary Holman, owners of the Indianapolis 500, owners of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway at that time, which would say the man married into some money. So Elmer and Marie got married, had four kids together, should have been happily ever after. Elmer retired from racing. His father-in-law did him the great service of making him Speedway vice president, and he was in charge of the Speedway's radio network. So, you know, good, good for you. Like you get to work for your father-in-law. You got a cushy job. You found the love of your life. Things should have been going well for Elmer, but apparently they weren't. Marie in 1976 kind of just was over it. She didn't want to be married anymore. She filed for divorce in May of that year. And you know what? May's a busy time for these race people. She could have picked a better month, but she didn't. Apparently Elmer found out about a little tryst she was having with her horse trainer. (laughs) this was like rich people shit. Oh, you're having an affair with your horse trainer. My God, the guy's name was Guy Trollinger. Elmer found out about it. Apparently when he was in his office, he got into a phone argument with this guy. And then he said, I got to go. He fled to Terre Haute where him and Marie's home was. And he was going to just have it out with Trollinger, maybe talk to him man to man, maybe punch him in the face. But things escalated and apparently they both had guns. A total of 17 shots were fired, and Elmer took five bullets to his body and ended up dying. So, my gosh, that's terrible. 
But you know what? Guy didn't get murder charges. He got off with self-defense and continued on being the horse trainer, living there at Holman Estates, and being Marie's boyfriend. That is wild. So nothing really happened to this guy. (laughs) Poor Elmer, though. Guy couldn't just catch a real break. A very tragic story is that of Frances Durr. She ran the ticket operations at IMS from the 50s into the 80s. And she was murdered in 1985. Nobody's ever found her murderer. And they do kind of think it was it was just a random act of violence. She was found beaten right before Christmas and strangled. And her body was left in a mall in her car in a mall parking lot. She was in her 70s. And this is horrible. Who does that to a 70 year old lady? And this is still a cold case in Indianapolis. If you know who may have murdered Francis Durr, like, please go talk to the police. And you know what? She was a pretty amazing lady. So she handled all the ticket sales. And we're talking tickets from the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, 80s. There wasn't no internet. You couldn't just like jump online and be like, I'm going to the Indy 500, buying my tickets now online. They'll just show up in my email. That didn't exist in her day. So she really handled hundreds of thousands of ticket requests, either through the phone or in person. Like, magnificent lady who very much deserved a better ending. And another horrific story is that of Cynthia Albrecht. Cynthia was an executive chef for Roger Penske's IndyCar team. And, you know, she was beloved. Like, I mean, who doesn't like the lady that's making you food? But um, so Cynthia, very beloved by her race team, very involved with her job, had a lot of friends there. But she did have an estranged husband. I'm not really sure what happened with him. He was also a racing guy. He worked from May 1992 as Hiro Mashuda's crew chief. Very involved in racing as well. They had a pretty nasty divorce. Later on, though, Cynthia's body was found in an Indiana field, nude, naked, and her head was missing. And it's been a cold case. They're like, who did this? We don't know. She's a sweet lady. She's beloved. But her crew members and her friends she worked with do believe it was her ex-husband who was responsible for her death. But he was tried. He had a really good attorney Nothing really happened on the with this. The they're still looking for her murderer or to actually charge somebody and make that murder charges stick. And her head is still missing. Nobody knows where it is, which is very, very truly sad. Like I hope her family gets some closure and, you know, finds her head and her pieces so they can lay this all to rest. So those were some murders that are Indianapolis Speedway adjacent. And that's a lot of tragedy to not even mention the disastrous 1973 month of May at the track that saw numerous deaths. And I'd highly suggest that some spirits still linger around the speedway and not just for race day. People who work nights there, whether it's maintenance or, you know, crews working late, they do think like wrenches go missing, lights flicker, like there's still some energy there. Next on my list is Central State Hospital and the Medical History Museum. If you're ever in Indy with a few free hours, I highly suggest taking a tour of the Medical History Museum. I've done it a couple times. I even dragged my husband there once, and he loved it too. You kind of just get a history lesson. They take you through the old pathology building, which has everything from real human skeletons to specimens still on slides to old medical equipment and psychology books. There's also a medicinal plant garden, which I'm sure if used incorrectly could actually kill you instead of saving you. They have some bizarre plants in there. The whole place feels vintage and like walking right back in time. 
as if you were attending your first day of med school in the 1800s. The pathology building itself may or may not be haunted, but it does have some old-timey medical equipment, and it definitely has some spooky vibes. It does share grounds with Central State Hospital, which was formerly known as Central Indiana Hospital for the Insane. It obviously got its name changed and shortened when people became more socially polite towards the mentally ill. The hospital operated from 1848 to 1994, and wild to me that think that this place was still operating during my lifetime. I was six in 1994. Treatment for the patients was often cruel and barbaric, even experimental. Patients did not live happy lives while residing here. Patients' abilities and illnesses varied greatly, ranging from legitimate mental disorders to the criminally insane and to just rather unfortunate people stuck here as to not burden their families. Although the treatment needs varied, people were often treated the same and even given like bare minimum, almost as if they were all prisoners and not patients, or, you know, they were strapped down and experimented on. Horrible things happened to the poor residents of this place. Central State Hospital consisted of several buildings and continuously added more to accommodate more patients, bringing them in for, from over 38 Indiana counties. There was an attempt to make the grounds look nice and feel welcoming with fountains and gardens and Victorian-inspired patient dormitories referred to as the Seven Gables. Underneath the pristine lawns and the well-built buildings laid something more sinister, a trail of tunnels connecting several of them, and off of some of the tunnels were dark rooms with chains and shackles adorning the walls. I can only imagine the horrors the patients might have faced in such walls and rooms apparently those were for you know the violent the criminally insane but that is still so inhumane to chain someone to literally a stone wall in a dark room horrific patients who died here were buried in unmarked graves if the families never came to claim them there was a cemetery like area on the property's northwest side that was filled with bodies all unmarked all unnamed and bodies were also found buried along the border of the property along Tibbs Avenue. With all the torture and brutal treatment happening here over hundreds of years, it is no surprise to me that this property is riddled with hauntings. So let's talk about some of their little haunted places on site. I did mention the pathology building later, which is a cool tour if you can tour it. Bodies of deceased patients were brought here to closely like study them, learn about their mental illnesses, find out their cause of death. If they were doing an autopsy, they were built, brought to this building. Noises have been heard from this basement and they've been heard by staff when no one else was there. Like, you know, when you were working alone and nobody else is in the building, you know, it's an old building, it might creak or whatever, but, you know, hearing voices from the basement do you know you might blame a ghost on that there's an also another building on site called the old powerhouse apparently its basement has some issues too the maintenance workers go down there occasionally to shovel out ashes twice a night and they do hear the screams of a woman coming from the corner of the basement but a woman's never seen they never see her they just hear her which is so scary and apparently there's some shadow people down there as well Another employee, a maintenance guy, decided he was going to take a break in the basement and take a nap. He was going to get away from everybody, you know, and leave me alone. It's my nap time. It's my break time. So he went to the basement room near the pumping station, and he awoke as he was being choked by an unseen force. He felt hands around his neck, but nobody was near him, felt pressure on his body. 
when he finally got up and like broke whatever was holding on to him, he went, he like ran upstairs, ran to a restroom and looked in the mirror. There were deep red marks around his neck where he had been choked. And the furnace is in this basement. Um, it's an old coal furnace. So there's a conveyor belt that like loads the coal into the boiler. Apparently it likes to turn on and off by itself. And not only is that convenient, but it is rather creepy. They, there's also an administration building. They don't think this ghost in here is a patient. It might be like an old secretary or administrative assistant still doing her job in the afterlife. She hear her footprints coming across the lobby and into the front window at the main desk. And it just like kind of goes back and forth like, you know, a secretary would. Like, you know, you'd carry papers to the front window. You'd carry them back. You'd file them. She's just all over the place being a little busybody. <laughs> This campus did have several dormitories. Like I said, they were called the Seven Gables, and they built them in a Victorian fashion to, like, kind of make them feel fancy. Like, if you were bringing a loved one here, you'd be like, oh, my gosh, look at these fountains. Look at these flowers. Look at these great dorms you get to live in. They were really trying to sell it, which is a whole issue on its own. Um, maintenance workers do still go in these dormitories, and they do hear cries and screams. They're unbodied voices. And they do believe, whether it's a spirit crying or residual energy, a lot is still happening in those dorms. The place had a lot of beautiful trees. The gardens were pretty. There is a grove of trees where a violent patient, a violent offender, killed another patient. And grounds workers can hear cries and groans of this victim coming from that area. They never see them, but they do hear them. And it's like it's reenacting itself. And they do kind of see, like, spirits, entities, like, dressed in robes, like, kind of running across the yard trying to escape. So just spirits there, like, kind of doing what they did while they were there. So underground, I did mention the tunnels that had the dark rooms in them, which, which is horrible. But there's a story of a patient named Al who he lived in a non-secure wing and he went missing. He was trying to escape. He was never found on grounds or off grounds, he was reported missing. Nobody ever found him in or around Indianapolis. So they just thought, okay, you know what? One got away. What are we going to do about it? <laughs> One got away. So a nurse found a female patient later on going down into these tunnels, apparently talking to a man named Al, but nobody was there. She wasn't seeing anybody. Apparently this patient saw the spirit of Al and was going down to, there to talk to him. When this all came about, the nurse told other nurses, it you know got escalated. They went down there and they did find his body, which is so sad. Who knows how long he had been down there. Adjacent to the Central State Hospital grounds is Newfields, which is also the Indianapolis Museum of Art. The grounds around it is called Newfields. And there's also part of it called Old Fields, which is the same property and grounds of the Lilly Mansion, which was built in 1913 and occupied by the Lilly family throughout the 1930s. The mansion and 26-acre gardens sits on what they now call Old Fields, and it's tourable. It's gorgeous. I went for um, their fall festival thing. What is it? Harvest Nights. I would like to go at a regular time because they already had it all spooky and decked out for Halloween. I would. I need to go in the summer. The house is beautiful. It gives me great Gatsby vibes. It's just this huge white mansion with the pillars. It's so pretty. Lots of Art Deco vibes, too, from the time that it was built. So you can tour it. There's a lot of original pieces and artifacts of the Lilly family still inside. And I do mean those lilies of the Eli Lilly Pharmaceuticals fame and fortune. Lots of nice things in there. <laughs> the upstairs has interactive displays for visitors to experience, but they may also experience a spirit on their visit. 
several visitors have reported seeing a man in a top hat roaming the grounds and the mansion as well. And he's also been spotted in the Clues Pavilion inside the art museum. And, you know, he's a dapper guy. He's wearing a top hat. He looks old timey. Could it be Mr. Lily himself or perhaps Mr. Hugh McKinnon Landon, the original owner who had the home built? Who knows? Both these guys probably dressed very well and they probably really love this place. So I wouldn't be surprised if they never left. Last on my list of this haunted Indianapolis episode is the Rivoli Theater. The Rivoli Theater was opened in 1927 by Universal Pictures on the east side of Indianapolis. Everything from silent pictures to the talkies to color movies to live music was played in this theater until it was closed in 1992. It has set vacant since, but some in the community have been working to restore it and keep it from being demolished. The theater wasn't all glitz and glamour and entertainment, as it was reportedly built on Indian burial grounds. Eek! Surprisingly, besides its closing, nothing really bad has happened here, but reports of toilets flushing and faucets running all all on their own have been reported since its opening. Apparitions of spirits have also been seen all over the theater. And perhaps most creepily is a lit smoking cigarette appearing in an ashtray all on its own. In modern times, you might be asking yourself, why even is there a gross ashtray? But this place was built in the 1920s, so smoking in a public theater, like, you know, whatever, people are going to do it. Nobody thought anything about it, and you know what? Smoking was rather commonplace well into the 80s and 90s, even with some smoking sections and restaurants. So it's only in modern times that we'd be like, why is this here? Um, no, it would, it would have been totally normal. So I just like to think a 1920s ghost is just having himself a movie still and having a smoke while he does it. So that is going to wrap up Haunted Indianapolis tonight, guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming back for season three. And I hope you spend the rest of 2024 with me. I have a lot of fun content coming up. I'm especially excited about Third Fridays and doing some old Hollywood stories. Super pumped about those, actually. So give us a follow on Instagram at Highly Spirited Podcast. Tell a friend. Give us a follow. Uh, Would have really appreciated if you tell friends. I would like this audience to grow this year. Until next time, cheers. Bye.